Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation, part two of our conversation with Elise Ribbons, a startup founder, radio show host, actor, and writer in China. She is also the founder of the Cheeky Monkey Theater Group and host of the nationally syndicated news talk show, Lao Wai Kandian, the success of which she goes into kicking off this episode. We then talk about Peking Opera, something Elise has a master's in fine arts in. We move on to discuss philanthropy in China, which was at the heart of one of her startup journeys as an entrepreneur, and we wrap up the conversation discussing the fine art of corporate world navigation, including the infamous eating and drinking culture involved. Enjoy. It's really not about drinking and having a good time. It's about giving yourself the excuse to to talk real. And once my boss realized that I could get the local officials to get into that comfortable space much more quickly. I mean, the, the first time it happened, I sent the local official to the hospital, like genuinely, like he was on IVs and was like alcohol poisoning. He, he'd never drunk with a foreign woman before, let alone an American, let alone one he'd seen on TV and blah, blah, blah. So, um, he drank way too much. I mean, I did too, but you know, I, I showed up with a full stomach because that's what you do when you go to these dinners. You eat a lot of protein. Like I would always have like nut bars or I'd get a burger from McDonald's or something. You just, you fill your stomach up before you go. That's the big secret. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber and Facebook. Times are changing and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Okay, Laowai Kandian. Tell us what is Laowai Kandian. I know that you uh, are are proud of its success, and I think it was like the most listened to something something. So get into all that. Where can audiences find it? Uh, what type of program is it? You know, what have some of the highlights of your time doing Laowai Kandian been? 欢迎收听老外看点。Um, <laughs> So La Wai Kandian translates as International Perspectives. It's a really fun program where uh, it's three different people from three different nationalities. Um, we've got, a, usually it's a, a, there's always a Chinese host and then um, me, the American, um, and either a Russian woman named Anna, who is just a delight because she's very prickly at first. Um, we always disagree. And then by the end we agree and it's wonderful. Um, sometimes there's an Indian guy, sometimes a Korean woman. Um, it's very fun because, uh, you know, I honestly think that we could solve world peace if they just let us take over the UN because you have a conversation with someone like just a real conversation about a, a difficult topic. And then by the end of that conversation, you always can find that human element. And even if you're agreeing to disagree about little details, you agree on the, the important basics. You know, it's one of those things that um, in politics in America right now, it's hard to, to get to. People are so distracted by those differentiators. They have a, have a hard time remembering that we all like, for instance, we all hate daylight savings time. You know, I hate it because all of a sudden, all of my meetings, I had to rethink, oh, God, 
where are they on the on the East Coast? Are they 12 hours now or are they 13 still? You know, we all agree with you there. Yeah, it's it's really I hate daylight savings, um, but it's it's really good that the show was on air for as long as it was. I mean, it still is. But, you know, the the listenership, I mean, it's fascinating. Even now, I will run into people, um, professionals who were avid fans of the show when they were in college. Um, a lot of government officials are fans of the show. So I, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I got my visa this time. Cause I think, you know, the, cause no one said, everyone's like, no, you're not going to get your visa, you know, middle of COVID you're not going to get your visa, but I, I got it. And I, I think it's because of, of that, you know, I'm, um, I'm still often brought in because people liked that I was real and offered a different perspective, but that, you know, we could always find a way to agree. So it wasn't like, you know, just smack your face, you know, cause entertainment value in news radio is not common, but to have it be entertaining, but still informative is nice. You know, um, yeah, we were the highest rated nationally syndicated news radio program, uh, in the country. So we had an average listenership of, I think over 50 million people, um, which isn't huge in China really, but for radio, um, it's actually not, not bad at all. Um, we had one episode a day, but they were all pre-recorded. That's a lot you know. though. How many would you record in a sitting? Three. Okay. So it wasn't too bad. You know, it's still relatively recent. How news long items. the shows? Um, just, uh, like 22 minutes. There's a Canadian, a mock show, like something this hour is 22 minutes in, in, it's a Canadian comedy show. Oh, okay. I like Canadian comedy. It's pretty good. Yeah. Man, one of my favorite Canadian shows ended and I'm very sad. Cardinal? Oh, Cardinal. Cardinal. Have you seen it? No. Oh, I really like it. We we got some good stuff. We punch above our weight, I think, uh, in a lot of that kind of stuff. Let's see that right there. Canadian entertainment and TV, right? The amount of funding that you have is so much less than what China has putting into its shows. And yet it produces content that is truly world-class, you know? It's true. It really just requires consistent support you know, to, to provide a place for writers to think and actors to act and all that, to, to give them a life, you know, cause being an actor in China is not a, it's not, I mean, people do it as a real, t- as a real job, but they don't have a That's life. What I was at. Well, you know, let's lean in on that a little bit because it is not something that I think the average young Chinese person grows up being encouraged to follow as a career path. Yeah, it's one of the things I always ask the actors I work with. So when did your parents finally get on board with you doing <laughs> <Yeah>. this? <laughs> yeah. Um, and most of the time, honestly, a lot of actors have shared with me that they're like, look, this is the only thing I could do. I'm not smart enough to get into a normal college. So I got into the acting school because I'm attractive enough or I could do this one little skill or I have this talent. Um, and so you've got the, I mean... Not the, I would say the majority of actors in the world are still intelligent people because acting well means you have to really understand yeah. something, you know, but there is a certain amount of, you know, Hollywood mocks it where, you know, there's the dumb, pretty people. And it's true. They're dumb and pretty. But, you know, if they look good on screen and they can act, they can pull that one character off. That's all they need to do. And that's fine. And I think the endless monotony of the unplanned snafus that happen on Chinese sets sometimes, it'd be better if you weren't intelligent. Because when you're intelligent and you can see what the problem is and you can see how to solve it, but no one will listen to you or let you solve it. It's like you want to go bang your head on a wall. And I'm not the only one who's experienced that. In fact, at this TV series I'm on, there's a, a Chinese man from 
from Dalian actually, who, um, he has, he was thinking the same thing with me. He was like, why did they do this? They could have just done this and this and this. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, let's talk about some Peking opera, uh, which goes really well with Peking duck. It does, <laughs> yeah. actually. And you can, you can, you can, you can tell our audience why that, why we're even saying that, but you have uh master of fine arts in Peking opera. So Tell us, okay, mm-hmm. you, you're going to have to explain what Peking Opera is, I think, to a lot of people. Um, it's super famous, um, but not maybe not everybody would know exactly what that entails and what that means. How, how does that help you understand Chinese culture? And Yeah, I mean, because honestly, I, I went into the program thinking it was just a way to study China because it is the crystallization of so many Chinese values, aesthetic, artistic, moral Um and I can actually segue this into business in a moment. So watch and be impressed um, or listen and be <laughs> impressed. Sorry. But yeah, no. So I started studying it just because I was fascinated with it as an art form, you know, and I thought it'd be a good way to just get to know China better. And little did I know that it was going to be such an intense experience and it sort of altered the way I view everything in China, um, because it really is a crystallization of Chinese history and culture. Um I would say less, it's not as applicable to modern China. Like it's, it's a less of a mirror to modern China um, as it is a mirror to traditional Chinese cultural values with the exception that, you know, during the cultural revolution, all of those performances were done by picking opera troops really. And they are very much a representation of those philosophies and, and whatnot in the era. Um, Sorry, just thinking about those shows. They're very cool. That's what actually got me interested in China is Hong Sun Yang Sujun, the um, the Red Detachment of Women. It was ballerinas with swords and guns. I mean, it was friggin' awesome. These women were so cool. And that's an interesting thing I've always noted in, in Peking Opera is the female characters are often really badass. And, you know, growing up in the West, you sort of are, are you have this really erroneous impression that Chinese women are docile and meek and, you know, weak and, 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 you know, the whole small foot thing is sort of a, I think it it was an attempt by the culture to try to make Chinese women weak because they are so powerful. I mean, just culturally, traditionally, they are these powerhouses. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's a very cool thing. So I, I started studying picking opera thinking about that, I never intended to be a stage performer because honestly, like I'll sing a little bit for you, but it's not something that I am terribly good at, um, in any real way. And also I'm not sure the art form has <laughs> the potential. I mean, I would like for it to continue mm. to evolve and mm. move forward, but it's a little bit like if you've ever listened to vaudeville theater, mm. that's sort of where picking opera stopped evolving, you know, um, and so musicals from the 1920s are really intolerable to a modern audience, right? And it's the same reasoning. Once you have microphones, once you have all these other modern technologies, you don't need those sounds to break through the crowd anymore. But you did back then, and it makes sense back then. But, you know, um, I would love to see it continue to evolve. And I hope now that I'm going to be working with that theater group that I'll be able to create some performances utilizing traditional picking up her techniques with some modern shows. Um, but yeah, it's, anyway, it's, it's a very cool art form. It sounds a little bit like you know, it's very high pitched because there were no microphones and uh, the, the performances were held in tea houses. So the audience was always talking and, and having fun and eating. 
you know, maybe not picking duck, but certainly eating lots of other foods. Um, and, um, so the sounds had to break through that. But the really cool thing about it is that there were no directors, each performer, each drawer, you know, each, uh, you know, cast member was their own director and every night was a new improvisation. And so people who are real fans of picking opera, you don't say you go to see a performance, you go to listen to a performance and, each night it could change a little bit. And there was one role, the, uh, the Chojuar, the, the clown character, even today, the only role that is allowed to sort of like openly mock the mm. emperor, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, um, a lot of, a lot of the arias or little raps that the, the clown character would, would sing out or say out, um, were really profound and, and pretty cool, but I could go on about that all day. Um, instead I will share this one observation I had when studying Sangguo Yi. that's the romance of the three kingdoms. One of the famous Chinese books from, you know, thousands something years ago. Um, and it's this, you know, during the, the three main kingdoms that were part of the warring States period, you've got all of these famous generals, you know, like the, um, the Red Cliffs movie is sort of based on one of the famous battles. You've got Cao Cao, that general and Zhuge Liang and, you know, all of this art comes from this era because it's such a, you know, just lots of, lots and lots of stories, lots of drama. And um, something I noticed after studying that, especially, you know, analyzing the roles and the lines that people would say is I would go from, you know, a class straight to a board meeting for China Pacific construction. And I'd be sitting around this meeting table in this fancy corporate office, everyone in Armani suits and ties. And I realized like, Oh, they're just performing a scene from the romance of the three kingdoms. Like it is exactly the same, this strategizing the, the, the way that, you know, people approached the business world and, and, connecting, communicating with each other, the, the way that you would speak to your superiors and, and everything. It was just exactly from that, that book. Exactly. Like so many things about China have changed so dramatically in the, in the past, you know, hundred years, but some things have stayed so profoundly the same. It is fascinating to me. The only real difference I would say is that certainly at least in the companies I've been a part of is that women are valued as humans, as, as people. And, um, in a lot of the traditional art, like, everywhere in the world, uh, the women didn't really have, they didn't even have, um, names, you know, um, in, in the romance of the three kingdoms, I think there's only two or three female characters and only one of them has a name. And of course she is a prostitute. I got a name for you. Chloe Zhao. Oh, Chloe Zhao. Yes. She is the Oscar award winning yes. director. She is I amazing. I just, I love her. I love her stuff. I love how she does everything. I just, I'm a total fangirl would love to work with her. Oh my God. Yes. But she's an example of, I think the intention was for her to go and study in America and then bring those skills back. But then instead she's just sort of thriving in America, but there's a lot of people in her cohort, you know, cause she's the daughter of, you know, some, um, very famous Chinese, you know, film industry people. And so a lot of her cohort went to study in New York or LA and then they came back. And those are the people bringing those sort of international visions and techniques and technology back. So I think that's why, you know, sort of stepping back in the conversation a little bit, that's why the Chinese, Chinese film and TV are just 
improving dramatically. I would say there's more and more series that are just beautifully filmed, beautifully written, beautifully performed. Um, I mean, it used to be if there was one a year, I was grateful because I try to watch Chinese TV series to improve my Chinese. I mean, that's a really easy way to get your Chinese skills up is just watch a whole drama because there's only, you know, subtitles in Chinese. And honestly, so much of language, as you pointed out earlier, Todd, is that, you know, the, the, the emotion, the body language, the tone that people use. So you, your vocab doesn't actually need to be huge to enjoy a TV series. And there's, but it used to be so few, I would struggle to watch because it was so dumb, but there's more and more now that are just good. I felt I was a bit of an anomaly in China with, I, I felt that I had a pretty good grasp of the culture. I felt like I had a good understanding of what the Chinese people felt, what they thought, what they were going through, because I wasn't necessarily adept at language, but I um, just picked up on so many other cues that I always kind of paid attention to and was more emotionally in tune. So although I couldn't mm. speak really well, there was so much contextual information that I could gather. Um, and so I think I just gave up trying to figure it out and wasting the resources on the what was being said and just started using my eyes and, and uh, understanding and, and my heart to to figure it out beyond what was actually being said. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's the same way that if you've got a fresh college grad who can read and write Chinese really well, but has never actually spent any time working and living in China, you know, they'd be at the opposite end of your spectrum, which is that like they wouldn't get so much of those um, very refined, very subtle cues. And, you know, I, I think you kind of need both. I'm not picking on you in particular, um, but if you spent the time and energy to get your Chinese up a little bit more, you would find a big, uh, a big leap or improvement in your uh, connection to Chinese colleagues or uh, Chinese businesses you wanted to work with. Hundred percent. I felt that tipping point was 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 out there. You know, I, I it, like eighteen months away of hard work, but it, it would have been there. And then I, I think I really would have just I needed to get to that point, and I didn't. Yeah. It just takes a, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't even think it's 18 months. I think it's a lot less than that, but you have to just, you have to focus on 18 it. months for and me. And <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I think you're brighter than you might give yourself credit for, but it does require that intensity of time and energy. But if you're not planning on physically being in China and doing your career in China, it doesn't make as much sense to invest that time and energy. So I get that, you know, um, it is one of those things that was, while it was appreciated overseas, I, you know, I was living in America for about three years um, before I came back to China this past fall. And time and again, I'd be passed up. Um, I'd make it to the second or third round in in job interviews, and then I'd be passed up for an ethnic Chinese person because the assumption was that their Chinese would be better than mine, even though <clears throat> I know in at least two of these jobs that the Chinese looking person who got the job was born in America their Chinese was crap, you know, they, and they had zero Chinese business experience. It, again, it's about, about how looks can affect your career perspectives <laughs> in the long run. But so, yeah, it, it just felt like, um, if I were planning on continuing my career in America, it would be less important for my Chinese to be this good for it to be at your level would be totally fine. Cause you get it, you get the cultural stuff, you get the, a lot of the subtleties and what's being said and not said. Um, but you don't actually need to be working in Chinese, you know, and everyone who's going to be working with you will be at least internationally minded. 
you know, versus I'm trying to break into areas where these are Chinese businesses doing business with other Chinese businesses. It's not about me being a foreigner in that I'm bringing a foreign perspective or foreign resources. It's really just, I, I honestly think there's that benefit to my white face here that I'm allowed to ask those dumb questions that everyone wants to ask, but no one can dare to lose face over. And so I've had a lot of negotiations uh, go very well because of that. And also, you know, I'm famous. They've seen me on TV. I can, I can out China most Chinese business people, you know, because unless they've got a degree in, in Mandarin, you know, a degree in Chinese, they've not been studying like the poetry mm -hmm. that I have or the, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like it's just, I was going to um, say you, you probably can out Mandarin a lot of Mandarin speaking Chinese. Well, yeah. I mean, just cause I've, from I always use level. this as an example. When you have a passion, when you have a passion for something, you study it, you learn it and you hold it much more dearly than people who just sort of passively have to accept it. They didn't choose to learn Chinese. They had to. I choose on a daily basis to continue learning Chinese. My wife is Russian and from a technical point, she would ask me things that I have I had never heard of. Like what is a past present participle or something like and I was right. just I looked at her like she was speaking German. I had no idea what she was talking about at all. She literally had to, and I had to Google it. And I started looking at it. I'm like, wow, yeah. there's all this technical stuff about this, this language, I think, that I'm fluent in. And I clearly don't really know what I'm doing from that level. But from, you know, studying it from a, a totally different viewpoint. Yeah, she, she knew so much more. just a cultural perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, she's abs you're absolutely right. She would have that mindset because she's actively learning. But there's this great book called Watching the English. And it was written by an English anthropologist. And everyone, you know, anthropologists are always studying other cultures, but she actually sat back and decided to study her own. Like there's a whole chapter on the conversations around weather, for instance. And it's so funny and fantastic and wonderful because rarely do we as humans take a step back to like analytically think about our own cultures. And it's such a a fascinating and wonderful thing to do. I highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to delve tiptoe very mm -hmm. lightly into the world of, of philanthropy in China, because mm, I know that okay. you have attempted to dabble or tiptoed or looked into and researched what you could do because you wanted to be a charitable person. You wanted to help the world around you. And so you spent some time looking around at ways that you could possibly do that. Can you describe the world of charity and philanthropy as it pertains to, because I think in the West, we have perceptions of it. We have activists, we have, we have UNICEF and we have, you know, all, all kinds of, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, the red cross and things. I mean, you know, do people in China give blood, you know, whatever. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what you mm -hmm. can without, without, you know, putting yourself into too much hot water around it because it is, and, and we can be very honest, it's a sensitive subject, right? So we don't, I don't want to put you in any kind of yeah. position where you can't say anything. So, but whatever you can potentially give us, if anything, maybe just speak to that, that realm. Well, I'll start with the facts. And the facts are that China has had several big, horrifying scandals around charity and charity funds. You know, there was the infamous Maserati incident with, um, you know, the China right. Red Cross. Right. There was the, with Guomemei, um, there's the, you know, after the Tianjin explosion, all of these fake charities were uncovered. You know, I, I forget the organization that did it, but I, it was possibly UNICEF or, G, or 
you know, some other organization, I forget the name of the organization. I apologize. Um, but they did a survey of Chinese charities and only like 0.001% of them passed like the basic transparency tests. Um, and that's in part because some charities just don't have someone who's a money person. So they're not keeping good books. Maybe sometimes they have to make some payments to certain local officials just to be able to do the projects they want to do. And they don't want to put that on the books. Um, maybe they are just money laundering outfits for businesses and local officials, which is one of the reasons why um, Hong Kong stopped. They, I mean, they officially stopped dealing with any Chinese charities or philanthropies. Like they would not accept any bank accounts or do any work with them because so many of them were just money laundering outfits. And that's a problem because then, you know, the entirety of Chinese, especially urban residents are sort of disconnected from charity, from giving back and from connecting with their communities, which is really sad. China has been trying to make efforts to work on this, to clean this up a little bit. Um, there's a, you know, some decent efforts being made there, you know, for instance, um, the American embassy, I, I did an event with them many years ago and they referred to Chinese nonprofits and NGOs as gongos, government organized, non-governmental organizations, <laughs> because all Chinese charities have to be registered with the government and they have to work hand in hand with the government. But this is actually a good thing because without government support and without government buy-in, you can't actually do anything in China, like anything. Right. And that's why, you know, when people complain about Chinese businesses being too hand in hand with the government, it's like, well, yeah, in order to do anything, you have to have government relations, like really good government relations. Um, I think it's hard for people to comprehend um, if they haven't worked in a country like China before. So, um, you know, for instance, there's this group in Ningbo um, that is government organized. It's a whole street where it's a government funded, like nonprofit or charity uh, accelerator. And so they get, they get office space or storefront space. They get um, like someone from the government, like holds their hand and helps them to register, uh, especially with social enterprises um, and helps them to connect to funding, to connect to customers and all of these things. I mean, even just having someone helping you navigate the very, yeah unclear securities wrote, you know, route around, um, actual business registration or any sort of official registration, uh, taxes, all of that. It's, it's very cl cloudy. So having someone there to sort of wipe the clouds away, it's yeah. very good. And so Ningbo has produced actually a, a not small amount of local nonprofits and, and charities and social enterprises that are able to do good work sustainably within the government frame. Um, and so those are all success stories, I think will be good examples moving forward. Now, none of them deal with super sensitive topics. I mean, I can think of the ones off the top of my head um, have to do with uh, providing uh, like sustainable business and income to agricultural preser preservation areas. So that there are these biodiversity areas in the Ningbo area in particular, where um, they don't want people to continue logging. They don't want them to continue to, you know, essentially rape the land, but they have to provide some other form of sustenance for the, the people who live in those areas. And so there's nonprofits doing that work, which I think is really good and very cool. Um, there is a, 
a social enterprise that was doing cultural preservation work. So there's this like famous boar tooth dance, for instance. Um, I wrote an article about it for new voices, um, which is very cool dancing. I mean, it's like a Peking opera thing, but with boar teeth in the mouth. It's, it's weird. It's crazy. It's wonderful. I think it'll come. I think it'll come. I think, uh, honestly, I think a lot of the, what's gone on in the West and, and, and all of those scandals and all those kind of things are probably, I, I'd be a little freaked out too. I, I'd be like probably, you know, taking it pretty slow and, and, and taking a very measured approach to how, how, you know, how as a culture do we want to really adopt charity and philanthropy in China and, and try to get it right? Yeah. I mean, historically the, I I believe it was codified into law in several different dynasties um, that during times of famine, like if X amount of um, produce was not produced, like if if the grain count was under X amount, the local landlords could not tax the people or they even had to give some of their stores back to the people. Um, Because ultimately, if you have the people starving, everyone suffers, right? Like everyone um, so I think it was codified into law because it just, it, it's what's sustainable. And it's one of the reasons why I think so many governments try to help the poor or try to, um, engage with philanthropy because it is just what is sensible. Because if, if someone is starving, you cannot safely walk down the street with your sandwich in your hand, you know, and that's sort of something you're seeing certainly right now in America is, uh, that disparate desperation you know um too many people are going hungry it's true okay i want to talk uh lastly about you were on the board of china pacific construction group i want to know you know mm-hmm. what was the organization what was the board what did you do what did you learn um about business in china from sitting on that board well i started in the company working in their international development office and eventually took over that position and then became eventually the coo in part because of this unique ability I had to connect directly with the boss because uh, everyone else, all the other executives in the company were personal relatives, right? Cause it's a Chinese company and that's very common in East Asia. Most of the executives and any Japanese company are in some way related to the owner, you know, the family <laughs> and same with Korean companies. It's very rare for it to be purely based on, on merit or talent, there's always some other thing involved. Um, and in China specifically, because the, the legal framework around so many contracts and so many business areas is so shady or unclear, most privately owned companies are, I mean, you rely on this person being a family member. They're from your village, so they cannot screw you over because you can, you can find them, (laughs) you know, their mama, (laughs) you know? And so this company was, it's a prime example of privately owned enterprises in China and, and construction companies even more so because, you know, they, it was about getting the other partner. So often usually a, a local government to buy in and how to cooperate with them where they're able to get the right cash flow at the right time in order to be able to pay for the project, which is always an issue in China. And just being a part of those negotiations was fascinating you know, I'm sure many of the people you've spoken with have talked about alcohol culture in China and why you have to drink at the, the business table. Um, and that was originally one of my high points is that, you know, I, I can drink, but also I can recite Tang Dynasty poetry and I can talk about 
you know, elevated political issues and they've seen me on the TV. So, um, I was like the ace, <laughs> ace up the sleeve. And, um, several times I was brought in to essentially like drink the local official under the table so that they would actually tell us what we needed to do for them to be able to do the project. And I say this because do you, do you understand what I mean? I think it's hard for people who haven't done business in China to get that. It's hard to describe really like the, the round table, the pack of smokes, yeah. the, the Mao Tai, like, I don't know. I don't know how, yeah. how I don't like know what I, to relate it to there. There's no metaphor for that. I know. Cause when I've tried to explain it, people are like, Oh, so you're an alcoholic. I'm like, no, no, that's not the point. The Chain point smoking is that alcohol. Each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, so there's a, a Lee, there's like an order to the amount of drinks that people have to have with you. So an example is in many Chinese companies nowadays, you will have um, pretty young women who are sort of like semi-management level because they need to be able to be important enough to be able to drink. And so the thing is that if you are, you know, the, the CEO of the company talking with the local official that you were trying to do a project with, that local official only has to really drink one to maybe three drinks with that CEO. But if it's a pretty woman, he has to drink at least one more with her, potentially up to three. And then if it is a, a woman that he's seen on TV, that he you know is an American and is all of these things, all of these different hats that I have, he has to drink more. It's harder for that local official to refuse. And he often didn't want to, you know what I mean? Because the whole point is that who has the face to force the other to drink, you know, because you want to get the other side more drunk because then you can negotiate better and blah, blah, blah. But by getting people to give in and play that game and then drink enough where they are allowed to officially lose face and not have it be a loss of face, then you can have the real negotiations. And oftentimes people weren't actually that drunk when they got to that point, but they had enough where they had the pretense that they were drunk and they got to see each other in a more raw element. So Trust is is essential because again, contracts don't really matter. The local government can always refuse to pay up in the end. And what do you do as the as the company? You walk away from the project and lose millions of dollars? No, you know. So you got to be able to trust them and get to know them and know what they need. And so if you get them to the point where they can actually share that information, then you can do business. And that's sort of what the drinking is about. And that's why it seems like it's punitive. That's why it seems like, I mean, there's all these classification things involved with it. And that's why I found that every level further I could get without China-ing them, like, you know, with history, talking about history or talking about poetry or art or something, um, you just get another drink in them and then they are willing to tell you that much more. And then eventually you're speaking in tongues dynasties. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Bad puns for the win. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not cause it's really not about drinking and having a good time. It's about giving yourself the excuse to, to talk real. And once my boss realized that I could get the local officials to get into that comfortable space much more quickly. I mean, the, the first time it happened, I sent the local official to the hospital like genuinely, like he was on IVs and was like alcohol poisoning. <laughs> He'd, he'd never drunk with a foreign woman before, let alone an American, let alone one he'd seen on TV and blah, blah, blah. So um, he drank way too much. I mean, I did too, but you know, I, I showed up with a full stomach because that's what you do when you go to these dinners. You eat a lot of protein. Like I would always have like nut bars or I'd get a burger from McDonald's or something. You just, you fill your stomach up before you go. That's the big secret. But yeah. And so I thought this was the first time it happened. I thought I was going to be fired. 
right? Cause he's in the hospital. I'm like, Oh crap. I've just ruined everything. And we're sitting in this meeting and I'm trying to drink this green tea, like just staring at the cup, wanting to die. And, um, one comes rushing in with, you know, like literally like a, a clipboard from the hospital with hospital paper on it, with the stipulations for the contract written out by the local official from his hospital bed. Right. Cause now he wants to work with us. And so we signed that deal that day. My boss had predicted it would take eight meetings and I did it in one. And once that happened, he brought me to all of the tough meetings. And so I did them all. Yeah. It was a very interesting experience. And, and so trying to explain that to people who've never done business in China, they don't, they don't mm, get it. No. And it's really <laughs> yeah. hard, but that's why we have this podcast is to try to help. Yeah. And I can't thank you enough for this amazing deep dive. We got so deep on so many different aspects of, of culture and everything. Um, Elise Ribbons, thank you. Thank you so very, very much for coming on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to catch up with you again. Yeah, it was good talking to you. Have a great day. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.